As you know, I hope, we're working our way through the epistle that the Apostle Peter wrote under inspiration. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This morning, the title of the message is An Armed Mind. An Armed Mind. I want you to imagine what it would be like to be a UN peacekeeper in Haiti. The UN has had peacekeepers in Haiti since 2004, when there was the Haitian Rebellion. Since 2004, men and women from all different nations who are with the UN have gone to Haiti to try to uh, strengthen the process there of justice and human rights. Wonder what you might face if you were a peacekeeper in Haiti. You would face difficulties, inconveniences, suffering. I mean, if you were on the ground in Haiti... You would come find out fast you need compassion and you'll need compliance with your superior's orders and you'll need to be cooperative. You'll need the insight and expertise of the, of the judicial and policing arms of the Haitian society. You're going to need medical and military and logistical expertise. And you're going to need an armed mind. An armed mind is a prepared mind. It's a focused mind. It's a determined mind. You're going to need that. We have not been called to be United Nations peacekeepers in Haiti, but we have been called to be evangelists and disciple makers in not just Haiti, but in the whole world, as the flags of the nations suggest this morning. What are we to do on this mission? What has Jesus left us to do on this mission? What has the Holy Spirit been given for to the people of God? What's it all about? If you're on the ground in Haiti and you don't have a clear understanding of what your mission is, you're going to cave in. But if you understand what you're there for, cooperate with others, you can accomplish great things. So it is the Christian life. We must understand our mission clearly, that we would not be distracted or discouraged or despondent. The mission we've been left with is quite simple. We are to bring glory to God in all things. We are to be disciples, committed followers of Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. We are to make disciples of all the nations. We are to have spiritual reproduction. If we ourselves are committed followers of Jesus Christ as disciples, we are called of God to have spiritual reproduction, that we would help others become fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. What is our mission? To exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in all that we do. To love God with our all, and then in turn love persons made in God's image with our all. The enemies of the peacekeeping mission in Haiti would start with voodoo, would include death and disease and overcrowding and lack of fresh water and sometimes lack of toilet facilities, rebels, criminals, corruption, injustice, human traffickers, just to name a few. What are the enemies to us as believer followers of Jesus Christ in our mission to make fully committed followers of Christ in the 21st century? 
One of our enemies, of course, might come to your mind first. It's an external enemy, and it's Satan. But what about the internal enemies to the mission of Christ that he's left for us? What about the internal enemies of our flesh, of our self-life, of our private and public sins, our sins of thought, word, and deed, our sins of omission as well as our thoughts of commission, our sins of commission. These are enemies to the work that God has left us to do. And the sooner we all realize something, the better. As Christians, we live Monday to Saturday and Sunday on a battlefield, not on a playground. The sooner we see that we're on a battleship and not a cruise ship, the better. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4, it's very clear. The Apostle Paul, under inspiration, wrote 2 Timothy as the last book of the New Testament before he was beheaded. He knew he was dying. He knew it was a drink offering being poured out. Probably two weeks after he wrote this letter, he died. And this is what he said to young Pastor Timothy and to us by extension. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself with the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. You're a soldier in God's army, and so am I. Another collateral reading to our main text is Romans 13, 11 to 14. And this is what it says. And do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness and not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And then a third collateral passage to the armed mind passage in 1 Peter 4 is the armor of God passage that we are probably very familiar with. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all power and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, in proclaiming it I may boldly speak as I ought to speak. Clearly, the Christian life is a battleground, and an armed mind is absolutely essential. If you don't have an armed mind, soldier, you will be a spiritual casualty in the battle. Not that you could lose your grace salvation, but you could be shelved, disqualified from service of the living Christ by sin. So, how should we arm our minds? How should our outlooks be properly prepared? On what should our thoughts focus? How should we see and interpret things that are happening to us? 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6 provides us great help. I'm going to begin by reading verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Loosely translated, that verse would be in the King James Version, arm yourselves with the same mind. In the NIV, it translates, arm yourselves with the same attitude. And in the NASB that I am reading from, it says, arm yourselves with the same purpose. So the question becomes, what is an armed mind? What is an armed attitude? What is an armed purpose? Well, it's very simple. It is Jesus' mind. It is Jesus' attitude. And it is Jesus' purpose. It is Jesus' mind that's an armed mind. And more specifically, the armed mind is Christ's mind in attitude and purpose with respect to three things. The armed mind is having Christ's mind in three spheres. With respect to sin, with respect to suffering, and with respect to service. If you will have the armed mind that God wants you to have, you will have Christ's mind as it pertains particularly to sin, suffering, and service. Let's take these one at a time. Let's start with sin. How does an armed mind view sin? Basically, I would submit to you this morning that there are three options about how a person can view sin. They all begin with T. We can taste it, or we can tolerate it, or we can tackle it. We have three choices when it comes to sin in our own lives and sin in the culture in which we live. We have three options. We can taste it, we can tolerate it, or we can tackle it. Sad to say, You and I both know that there are true born-again Christians who taste sin. These believers know it's wrong, but they do it anyway. And in so doing, they abuse God's grace by choosing to sin with the thought that I will choose to sin, but as I confess my sin, God will be faithful and just to forgive me my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, so I'm going to sin now and confess later. That is not an armed mind with respect to sin. 
The second option that we face as responding to sin after tasting it is to uh, tolerate it, to tolerate it. There are also believers that tolerate sin. And really, if we're honest, that's actually is quite easy. It's as easy as falling off a log to tolerate sin. Because the more sin surrounds us at work, at home, at leisure, the more sin passes off as entertainment on our devices and in our homes, the more that sin passes off as entertainment, as it's reported on television news or in the newspaper or in movies or DVDs or CDs or cable television or Kindle books, the more sin is passed off to us as being innocuous and okay as entertainment, the more that is the case, the more we will get not an armed mind about sin, but a deadened mind. A deadened mind about sin, a deadened conscience regarding sin. The more we are exposed to sin, the more we are apt to accept sin as somehow inevitable. And in reality, of course, sin is our enemy. Sin is our vile enemy. Sin is our serious enemy. Sin, few things can be as destructive in your life and mine as sin. Few things can be as problematic in your life and mine as sin. Few things are more dangerous in our experience than sin. We dare not tolerate it. And when we look at 1 Peter 4, we see that persons who are outside of Christ, who are spiritually dead, who are not saved yet, unregenerate, we see that people outside of Jesus both taste and they tolerate sin. It's par for the course for the unregenerate person. They taste sin and they tolerate sin. Now watch for what God says about these unsaved tasters and tolerators of sin as found in verses 2 to 4 of our passage. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. Verse 4 is clearly a a picture of a flood stream of immoral self-pleasing, a tidal wave, a tsunami of immoral self-pleasing. And the verse 4 pictures sinners to be swept away by that evil current and wave, being surprised, frankly, being annoyed that you as a believer don't dive right into the raging waters with them. You ever noticed that the person who doesn't drink alcohol, all the friends who do drink alcohol work hardest to get that person to drink alcohol? Misery loves company. And so when they see a believer seeking in the power of the Holy Spirit and obedience to the word of God, not to tolerate sin, not to sanction other people's sin, when they see that, the verse says they malign us. They speak poorly of us. You probably heard it. He's holier than thou. 
She's a goody two-shoes. He's a Bible thumper, you know. She's such a killjoy. She just needs to loosen up. He's out of touch. He's out of touch. This brings me to the properly armed mind as Christians we have relative to sin. It is an outlook that tackles sin. I'll confess something to you. I'm not scared of a lot, but you know what I'm terrified of is snakes. I am terrified of snakes. I'm told there's not a poisonous snake on this island, and that makes me feel good until one of those non-poisonous snakes slithers all around me. And then I feel like getting a shovel and not to carry him back to the bush. Because I'm scared. Because I see the snake, rightly or wrongly, I see the snake as opposing me, not liking me, being my enemy and being a threat to me. That's how we need to see sin. Any sin. And the armed Christian mind relative to sin is proactive against sin and not reactive. Often when we're reactive to sin, it's too late. We're in that bad situation. We're going down the wrong path. We're facing those tempting uh, questions and issues. Often it's too late. So we must be proactive. We must be uh, mindful, armed mind against sin. We must be proactive ahead of it as much as we can be. We're to oppose sin. We're to hate sin. We're to seek to do sin in. We're to see sin as our enemy. We're to see sin as a threat to our well-being. The great evangelist Billy Sunday had such an armed mind when it came to sin. Billy Sunday hated sin. This is his quote. I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I have a foot. I'll fight it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and toothless and... um, Fistless, toothless, and uh, I'm going to gum it to death. I'm going to gum it to death till I go home to glory. And it goes home to perdition. End of quote. I love that attitude. Comes from an armed mind. Now, I must admit, not proud of it, that I don't always hate sin in that way. Maybe you can relate. But when I do get soft on sin, I need to remember what sin did to my Savior. It caused him to go to the cruel cross. If you look back in 1 Peter to chapter 3, verse 18, you read, For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. First Peter 4.1 also tells us what sin did to Jesus. It made our Lord suffer in the flesh. Verse 1, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Our Lord 
tackled sin, and because our Lord tackled sin, we must as well. Jesus Christ saw sin as real. He saw sin as serious. He saw sin as something that had to be dealt with and radically. He welcomed great suffering. In Gethsemane, he prayed, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He knew exactly what was entailed in the emotional, spiritual, physical, mental anguish of the cross. But he went with that cup to that cross because Jesus Christ, along with God the Father who sent him, knew that to deal with sin, it had to be a radical response. We too must have a radical response. We must not taste sin. We must not tolerate sin. We must not do anything like that, we must tackle sin. Consider Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. For consider these words of Jesus. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. You're better off being handicapped than sinning. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. You're better off being half blind than sinning. These are figures of speech called hyperbole, exaggerations made to make a point. I could say this afternoon at lunch, I could eat a horse. I don't mean that. I mean I'm hungry enough as a horse is hungry. Jesus said to deal as radically with sin in your life as is necessary. Now, Jesus didn't say literally chop off your hand if you're a thief because then you can steal with your other hand. And Jesus didn't say pluck out your eye if you're a luster after women because you can lust after women with your other eye. And the matter of fact is, if you're lusting after women, you can lust after women with no eyes. It's the 18 inches between that's the problem. So Jesus is not literally say, cut off your hand and pluck out your eyes. But he did say, by way of hyperbole, do whatever it takes, be radical, to tackle sin in your life. Going back to being soft on sin, we must remember what sin did to Jesus, but we also must remember what our lives were like before we were saved. Do you know who makes the greatest evangelist is the Christian who never forgets how bad their life was before God, before they were saved. Verse 3 of our passage. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. If you want motivation to tackle sin as it ought to be tackled, you give thought to where you were in your life before you were saved. Maybe you were an addict. Maybe you were abusive to your spouse or children. Maybe you were trapped in lies upon lies upon lies. Maybe you were a thief. Think back to who you were before Jesus Christ saved you and made you new. Verse 2 is another motivation for us to tackle sin. 
so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Do you know how much longer you're going to live on earth? Neither do I. Fifteen years ago, a medical doctor friend of our family, a dear friend, asked me if I would promise to do her funeral when she died. (laughs) The first thing I had to say was, if I'm alive. She said, will you promise to do my funeral wherever you might be ministering in the world? Yes. She passed away on Thursday. So Beth and I will be flying up to Toronto Tuesday. And I'll be conducting her funeral on Thursday to keep my promise. She didn't know how long she would live. And I didn't know how long I would live. But as it turns out, she went on ahead of me. And so I will conduct her funeral in the power of the Spirit for the glory of Christ. None of us know how long we have to live on earth. None of us. And for this precise reason, none of us ought to waste one minute of that precious future living for the dust of men instead of the will of God. Nothing, nothing destroys a future more than sin. Nothing destroys a future more than sin. And just as pain follows exercise for a guy like my age, and just as empty wallets follow your shopping trips to Florida, (laughs) we need a military, militant attitude towards sin. We must tackle sin. It was the Puritan John Owen who said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. That's the truth. And so having an armed mind against sin is not to taste it, not to tolerate it, but to tackle it. Now let's move from the matter of sin to the armed mind as it relates to suffering. The armed mind relates to our personal suffering. In the first place, the armed mind expects suffering. Go ahead to verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. The writer says, don't consider personal suffering strange. Don't consider a fiery ordeal something you don't deserve. Expect suffering. And second, the armed mind causes us to benefit from suffering. The armed mind can help us see what God is working in our character as he causes us to suffer. Yeah, he causes us to suffer. You know, the devil gets way more credit when it comes to suffering than he should. Sometimes God, in his mercy, takes us to the schoolhouse of suffering. And we need to see that according to verse 1 of chapter 4, that we will suffer because we're in a bad world. We'll suffer for doing good because we're in a bad world. First one, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Christ suffered in the flesh. 
Suffering, as Paige Patterson, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention years back said, God's, God's granting of suffering, our adversities are God's universities. God's universities are wrapped up in our problems, our adversities. Before the Iron Curtain came down in Europe, an old Christian man in communist-controlled Budapest remarked when asked about the effects of persecution and discrimination on the lives of Christians. This is what he said, quote, It is like the deep, fast-flowing Danube River. The banks of the river were artificially narrowed throughout the city of Budapest. As a result, the river's fast waters dug deeper and deeper and deeper into the river bottom. The lives of the believers under restrictions have fewer options in communist countries, but their narrowed lives, but their narrowed lives have found great depth by going deeper and deeper into Christ. Our adversities are God's universities, and the armed mind understands that sufferings are not to be avoided at all costs necessarily, but that sufferings can be a friend. Sufferings can be a tutor. Sufferings can be exactly what we need to deepen our walk with Christ. So we've seen the armed mind as it pertains to sin. Tackle it. The armed mind as it pertains to suffering. Welcome it. Third and last in our passage, the armed mind as it pertains to service. There are some people who would have you to believe that Adam and Eve, before they fell into sin in Genesis 3, were just looking around at the clouds and the fruit trees and the animals and just had an iced tea and they were having a very restful time. That's not what it was. Before they fell into sin, God gave them jobs. God gave them occupations. God gave them purpose. God gave them work. They were to name the animals. They were to have dominion over the animals. They were, they were working. There are some Christians who think that everyone else in the assembly should have a ministry except them. And they should just have an iced tea and watch all the rest of us minister. That is not God's plan. That is not God's plan for the armed mind. The armed mind has a very unique viewpoint on Christian service. It sees that we are all destined to serve God. It sees that God's will is for every Christian to serve him. That's why we've been given new life in Christ, and that's why we're left here on earth, and that's why we each have at least one spiritual gift. And so I ask you humbly, but sincerely and directly, do you have a ministry in this church? We need help. With children, with teenagers, with adults, with senior citizens, with shut-ins. We need help. The believer who has a spiritual gift 
but not an armed mind is like a soldier in an army which is at battle who thinks they're unemployed. There is no unemployment in an army that's fighting a battle. There should be no unemployment in the family of God, the incredible body of Christ. And it is interesting that in verse 5, but they shall give an account to him who already is judge, the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may not live in the spirit according to the will of God. There are two judgments. The first is an evaluation for born-again Christian. No unsaved, unredeemed person will be at the beam of the judgment seat of Christ. The evaluation of believers at the judgment seat of Christ will be that Jesus Christ will look at our lives, look at the way we use the time he gave us, look at the education we had, look at our opportunities for Christian service, look at our spiritual gifts utilization, and Jesus Christ will evaluate each of us one by one. Beth won't stand with me at the Bema. I won't stand with Beth. We'll be individual. And Jesus Christ will either grant us reward when our motives and our use of our time and spiritual gifts are seen to be appropriate, or Christ will withhold reward, not of heaven, but withhold reward with respect to sharing a a portion of his rule and reign of earth in his thousand-year millennial kingdom. That is one evaluation. And if you know Christ as Savior, you're going to be there. I submit you don't want to be embarrassed when you stand before Jesus and said, yeah, I had this spiritual gift, I never really used it, or I never bothered to find out my spiritual gift because I didn't really think they needed me at the church. I don't think you want that. On the other hand, there is a judgment of all the unbelievers who have rejected God from all the eras of human history. That will be the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. And all the unbelieving dead of all the epochs and eras will stand before Jesus Christ as judge. And he will point out to them that their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life and therefore their sentence is a literal hell. And Jesus Christ, it says in that passage, will look at books that record the evil deeds of persons who haven't been washed clean by the blood of Christ. And there will be sentencing in hell by Judge Jesus based on the amount of those deeds, the evil deeds. There will be levels, degrees of punishment in hell. None of it will be pleasant, but some of it will be worse. And so in closing... Life is too short to serve sin or Satan or self. And earlier in the book of 1 Peter, you may recall that Peter writes to aliens scattered, and then he names certain regions of the Gentile region. We are aliens. We are tourists. We have some guests who are tourists today. We welcome them. We're glad they're here. We are tourists on earth. If you look at your ultimate passport, it doesn't say the Bahamas, it doesn't say United States of America, it doesn't say Canada or any other country, it says heaven. If you're saved, your passport, ultimate passport, is heaven. 
because your citizenship is in heaven. And so we are tourists here. We are called to have an armed mind. We are called specifically to have an armed mind as it pertains to sin, tackle it. As it pertains to suffering, welcome it. And as it pertains to Christian service, do it. Jim Elliott, no relation, was one of the missionaries that was speared to death by the Alca Indians in Ecuador. The Point of the Spear is a great film you might want to consider renting or on Netflix or whatever you want. The Point of the Spear. Jim Elliott, before he was martyred, as I believe a man in his late 20s, he said, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That should be a watchword on our lives. That should mean that we see ourselves on a battleground and not a playground, on a battleship and not a cruise liner. That sin must be tackled. That suffering must be welcome. And that service must be done. Not by everybody else except you. Service must be done by each of you. Now, before I just pray here, I would only be giving you half of the story if I said that Christian service is an obligation, it is. But the other side of that story is that Christian service is a pleasure, is a privilege. Maybe you'll have greater joy in your Christian life if you get involved in a Christian ministry when you see lives being changed by Jesus. But that's up to you. I encourage you to make the right choices. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we are on the victory side, although we are an army, that we are fighting a battle. But thank you that you give us the mind that we need, the armed mind, that we will see sin as we ought, that we will tackle it at every front, that we will not just cozy up to it, but we go after it. Help us to have an armed mind, Father, that looks at suffering, personal suffering, not theory suffering, not suffering by somebody else on the other side of the world, but our suffering. Help us to see our suffering and welcome it as a university in, within which we can learn more deeply of you. Help us to have an armed mind last that it looks at Christian service that it's ours to do with teammates, but it's ours to do. And help us to do it with joy and prayer. And may we see fruit for our labors, fruit that will last. Lord, please bless this precious church family with armed minds, 
May none of us be casualties of war. May all of us awaken each day and ask you for an armed mind. Lord, you're faithful and you will provide. Thank you. In Jesus' name and God's saint said, amen.